are listening to the podcast of the White Church at the Elk River YMCA in Minnesota. Our mission is to seek Jesus, connect together, and share his love. Mark 14, 12-26. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two disciples telling them, go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house, he enters. The teacher asks, where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table, eating, he said, Truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely you don't mean me. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he not had been born. While they were eating, Jesus took bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly, I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Morning. I'm Kurt Hinkle. I welcome you this morning. Our table question, what is a meal or food that evokes memories for you? Shout out some things. Tater tot hot dish? Oh, I'll write soup, okay. Anything else? For me, whenever I have prime rib, which isn't that often anymore for a variety of reasons, but whenever I have prime rib, I remember the old Curtis Hotel, which was in downtown Minneapolis. I don't know when it was built, but it was around for a long, long time. And it was the, uh, that and the Lexington, which was across the street, were the places to go in, uh, I think, the 40s, 50s, 60s, in that era. In the early 70s, I worked for Cretex, and it was my job to set up the annual superintendent's meetings every year, bring in superintendents and foremen from the 25 factories across seven, eight states, something like that. And so I had to go down there several times and meet with key people, and they schmoozed me, apparently, because we were paying the bill. And part of the schmoozing was I got to eat in the blue room. And I would be really surprised if there's anybody in the room that knows anything about the blue room at the Curtis Hotel. Blue room was downstairs, and it was known for one thing, prime rib. There was only one thing on the menu, evening meal, prime rib. Lunch, they toned it down, it was a prime rib sandwich. And so I was down there for a meeting for a prime rib sandwich, and they bring out this chunk of prime rib, and it was the first prime rib I had ever had in my life. I did not know that meat could taste so good. (laughs) And I was trying to figure out the sandwich part of it, because there's a chunk of prime rib and a little bit of uh, coleslaw. And as I'm working my way through, I discover there's a little piece of white bread underneath. It's all sopped up and equally good. So prime rib, anytime I have prime rib at the River Inn or anywhere else, I think of the Curtis Hotel. 
When I go to Culver's, especially when I go to Culver's and have a concrete mixer, I think of my dad. When he was in uh, the care center, Guardian Angels Care Center, I would come down from Cambridge uh, right about lunchtime, stop at Culver's and grab him a concrete mixer, chocolate concrete mixer, because that fit his swallowing capabilities. He had had a stroke and it was perfect. And I would feed him that concrete mixer every other bite, half or mine, and I would feed him that concrete mixer <laughs> in front of his table mates. <laughs> which he was very kind to them and said after every bite, mmm, this is good. <laughs> so, concrete mixer. It goes in reverse, too, by the way. Food works in reverse. I'm guessing the younger among us, maybe even the older among us, on your way to church this morning, we're wondering, cinnamon rolls, muffins, what are we going to have? And all the juices get going, quite literally. This morning, we are going to talk about a most familiar meal, communion. And this is Communion Sunday, so it is absolutely perfect. We're going to take a deep dive into this famous meal that we refer to as the Last Supper. It's called the Last Supper because it was the last meal that Jesus had in an official capacity before his death and resurrection. It was a meal that his disciples had celebrated many, many, many times in their lifetime, once a year. Every year they celebrated this, but this one turned out to be significantly different and unforgettable. My hope for today is we might come away with looking at this familiar story and seeing it different. I hope you might be able to say one of three things. I never heard that before. I never heard it that way before. I never thought of that before. Which is, by the way, always a good thing to do when we're in Scripture or listening to messages. Look for one thing that you can come away with that's brand new, that'll stir around in your heart for the next time. So a little recap leading up to the Scripture Barb just read. As Najar reminded us last week, uh, throughout the Gospel of Mark, Jesus was revealing himself constantly to his followers, giving them a glimpse of who he was. Last week in chapter 8, Jesus point-blank asked the disciples who people say that he was. In other words, what's the word on the street? And they answered. Some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah. Others say you're a prophet. And then Jesus stopped them. I can imagine them walking along. And Jesus stopped and said, who do you say that I am? And Peter, as we discovered last week, jumps right in there, because he always did, and says, you are the Christ. And Jesus confirms this, the Christ, the Messiah, the one who is expected to vindicate, restore, and rescue the Israelites from the oppressors, and in this case, the Roman Empire. Think how exciting this must have sounded to his followers. We get to be part of the overthrow of the Roman Empire. Think about that as they're walking along. They're on a long trip as Jesus is having this conversation. Imagine the rest of that conversation as they kind of drop back and go, I think I'd like to be in charge. (laughs) I think I'd like to be like a lieutenant. Um, But they're starting to think, how's this going to happen? And they're beginning to see and think in terms of, of an overthrow. Then Jesus went off script. Instead of any discussion related to a Roman overthrow, 
Jesus began to prepare his followers, immediately began to prepare his followers for his death, that he would be killed. That's not an overthrow. That's being overthrown. And he said this again and again and again. Between chapter 8 and here, he has said this several times. And this was way outside their thinking because Messiahs didn't get killed. Instead, Jesus' script toggled over to something different, like the first shall be last, and the greatest among you shall serve others. That's not overthrow language. And the disciples struggled with this new script. Absolutely struggled. We see it in the readings. If you've been watching The Chosen, oh my gosh, you get to see how the disciples are struggling with who Jesus is and where he is headed. There's one line where one of them says, I don't understand most of this. I'm just following. Another episode, one of the disciples said, what is happening? What are we a part of? The second one says, is it wrong to say I have no idea? And the first one says, no, it makes me feel better. So they're struggling, trying to figure out who is this Jesus and what kind of a Messiah might he be? So we come to Mark 14, which Barb just read. Starting with the preparation of the Passover meal. On the first day of the festival, the unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples, telling them, go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters, the teacher asks, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover of my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The two disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. Let's talk a little bit about this Passover celebration. In their world, first century, and before. You might recall that the Israelites moved from Canaan several thousand years before to Egypt during a drought, thanks to Joseph and his amazing technicolor dream coat. In time, they outnumbered the Egyptians, outnumbered them enough that the Egyptians conscripted them and enslaved them. They actually moved them off their land and into ghettos, an ancient version of apartheid. They were enslaved for 430-ish years. How long is 430 years? Let's put it in our context. 430 years ago was before 1600. England had just begun to colonize America. Think of all that has changed for us in the last 430 years. Think of what life was like in slavery for 430 years. Then God, through Moses, who looked a lot like Charlton Heston, demanded the release of his people. It just occurred to me, most of our biblical understanding is probably from Hollywood. Oh, wow. And the famous line, let my people go. The Egyptian ruler, Pharaoh, the Pharaoh, absolutely refused. I mean, it would have killed him economically. So God sent a number of plagues to encourage Pharaoh to rethink his stance. Instead, Pharaoh dug in his heels and treated God's people more unjustly than he had before. 
After each plague, he ratcheted down the restrictions. Finally, finally, God sent an angel of death. As payment for Pharaoh's relentlessness, this angel of justice would fatally visit Egypt, resulting in the death of the firstborn of every household in the land, Egyptian and Israelite. But God provides a means out. He provided a means of protecting his people. They were to slay a lamb, spreading on the doorposts the blood of that lamb. If they obeyed this, and they had to choose, then the angel of death would pass over their house, saving the firstborn. Pharaoh finally relented and let the Israelites go. So Passover in the Israelite culture and religion is a big deal. How big? When Jesus arrived on the scenes, the Israelites had annually celebrated this story for over 13 centuries. 13. It's kind of like Christmas or Easter for us. It's a big deal. People made every attempt to get to Jerusalem for the Passover meal and the festival, which was seven more days. It was a big deal to shut down your shops, to leave the fields, and head for Jerusalem, which probably took three or four days to get there and three or four days to get back. Two-week vacation every year. How big? The historian Josephus recorded some estimates of the A.D. 66 celebration, which was the year the temple was completed, He estimated that 255,600 lambs were slaughtered in the temple. And just using the number of 10 people per lamb to eat it, two and a half million people in tiny Jerusalem. It was the Passover meal that Jesus sent these two followers to prepare for. Jesus apparently prearranged the place, and it was probably a little bit under stealth, said, go and prepare. Go and prepare didn't mean go find the place. Go and prepare really meant prep, sous chef, all that stuff, prep for the meal. Preparation started mid-afternoon where they would take the lamb to the temple where it would be slain and its blood would be sacrificed. The lamb was given back to them, which then they roasted all afternoon on a spit. A quarter of a million lambs. This is state fair on steroids. Imagine the aroma that goes with the Passover meal. So let's talk a little bit about the meal itself. It's way more than a meal. It was a time of celebration, a time of remembrance and of hope. It involved a specific order as well as a scripted liturgy. There were four parts to the meal. Each followed with a cup of wine. The whole meal lasted. You ready for this, kids? Six-ish hours. They would start at sundown and get done around midnight. So there are four parts. The first part, the host, the head, presumably Jesus in this story, offers the first cup of wine and a scripted prayer of blessing. After the second cup... 
Then a child asks this specific question, why is this night different than other nights? Where the host retells the whole story. So that little bit I told you in a minute or two, probably an hour or so. It's a long story. It's a huge story. It's a big part of who they are. So the host retells the whole story. Finally, the third part, they get to eat. The host blessed the food, and the people begin to partake, which is unleavened bread, herbs, greens, stewed fruit, and the roasted lamb. And they eat all of it. They don't leave till it is gone. So that's part of the whole thing. Then around midnight, they conclude by singing some or all of the psalms, Psalms 113 through 118, which are known as the Hallel Psalms, like in hallelujah, as in praise. So, for example, Psalm 117. Praise the Lord, all you nations. Extol him, all you peoples. For great is his love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. So a number of songs like that that they would sing at the end of their time. So that's the meal. That's what they went to prepare. So let's pick up after they're done their preparing. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. Now there's something I hadn't seen before. Jesus shows up with the twelve. But the meal's been prepared for. So likely, and it makes all kinds of sense, that this wasn't a meal with just the twelve, like every picture we've ever seen. It was likely a meal with Jesus and his close followers, Mary, Martha, all those folks who were with him all the time. So this upper room was filled with a number of people. Jesus and the twelve show up. And then Jesus said, while they were reclining at the table, Jesus went off script again and said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Not supposed to say anything at this point. One who is eating with me. Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. If ever there was a mic drop in the New Testament, this was it. Imagine this buzz that's maybe going on as they're preparing to eat. Jesus makes this statement. The room, I can imagine, went silent. Who could he possibly mean? It was obviously someone in the room. Finally, someone asked, as most of the translations say, is it I? This one says, the NIV says, they were saddened, and one by one they said to him, surely you don't mean me. And Jesus said, it's one of the twelve, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. This is a celebration. Think of the effect that that statement had on the rest of the evening. A little tense, a little buzz going on. What do you think he's talking about? Students, imagine you come to class one day, 25, 30 of you, and the teacher starts the class by saying, the test we took yesterday, one of you cheated. I'll talk to you later. Now we'll get on with class. You think they were paying attention? You think they were engaged? A little buzz over here, a little buzz over here. Finally, somebody says, um, who could it be? Could it be me? 
Now somebody on the left side of the room. Okay, that narrows it down. So that group is now wondering what's going on. It's one of the 12. And while they were eating, and presumably distracted by the bomb that Jesus had dropped earlier, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, take it, this is my body. Wait, what? That is not what he was supposed to say. They've done this enough times, they know what he was supposed to say. He was supposed to say, Blessed art thou, O Lord, our God, King of the world, who brings forth bread from the earth. Blessed art thou, O Lord, our God, King of the world, who brings forth bread from the earth. He was off script again. Instead, Jesus said, this is my body. This is my body. Yeah, we don't have time to get into all that that could possibly mean. This is my body. And it's my understanding that both the Greek and the Aramaic for what Jesus said there means this is my sum total. This is all of me. This is my whole being. This is my body. Then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the new covenant. Now, I said new. If you look in your Bibles, there's probably a footnote that most manuscripts have new, and I think that's an implied, and it's in some manuscripts. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many. He was off script again. That is not what he was supposed to be saying. In fact, he was really off script. Given their religious aversion for blood, to say, this is my blood. Like, whoa. They didn't drink blood. They didn't touch blood. In fact, that's Presumably why the Levite and the priests went to the other side of the road when they saw the man beat up in the Good Samaritan story was because they were on their way to work and they couldn't be touched by blood or touch blood. They say that the third cup of the Passover meal is called the cup of redemption. It's the first cup to be drunk after the meal. It is believed that it was the cup of redemption that Jesus instructed his disciples at the Last Supper when he said, this is my blood. In fact, both accounts in Luke and Matthew say, after the meal, Jesus took the cup and said that. The cup of redemption. This is my blood of the new covenant, which poured out for many. There's so much in this statement. A legitimate question might be, If this represents a new covenant or his covenant, what was the old? In their culture, going way back centuries, covenants were signed with blood or slain animals. There's a variety of ways of doing it, but God used the approach that the people used in signing covenants with his people. David Garland said in his commentary that blood sealed or inaugurated a covenant. 
And at Exodus 24, so after Moses and Charlton Heston get the people out of Egypt, then he gets instructions from God, and the people agree to them. And Moses took the blood and sprinkled it over the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. This is the old covenant, which was between God and his people, the Israelites. This was the old covenant. This new one is for the many. Don't miss that. Not just the Israelites. Not only did Jesus go off script, he changed the rules. Garland goes on to say, Jesus' sacrificial death is also a covenant-making event. It marks a new act of redemption and begins a new relationship between God and all the people. One that supersedes the old. It marks a new act of redemption and begins a new relationship between God and all the people. One that supersedes the old. Or as Paul wrote to the Corinthian Christians, the old has gone, the new is here. Jesus was basically saying that when he held up the cup. The old is gone, the new is here. Jesus is the fulfillment of the purpose of the old covenant. It is now obsolete. A new thing is happening. This was no normal Passover meal, as you're figuring out, and as the disciples were probably figuring out, one that they would remember forever. In one evening, Jesus took all that was sacred to his followers and turned it upside down. This was stuff that they would fight about and fight over and fight for. They were willing to die for this kind of stuff. And Jesus undid 13 centuries of tradition in six hours. Think about that. Think about your organizations, how fast they move. Think about churches, how fast they move. In six hours, Jesus totally undid 13 centuries of tradition. It was such a big deal that after supper and his death and resurrection, Jesus' ragtag group of followers switched their day of worship in one week. They went from a Saturday worship to a Sunday worship. Maybe there's a couple of weeks in there, but it happened fast. In the midst of all this confusion of the last Passover meal, Jesus also said, Truly I say to you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. This was the good news that Jesus' followers wouldn't realize for three days when God, who is king, who reigns, vindicated Jesus through his resurrection. Evil and death did not have the last word. God's kingdom had broken in a big way. So what do we do with all this? I mean, this is a lot of stuff. <laughs> and fascinating. I had more fun working on this than 
Actually, if I were taking all the things I was having fun discovering, we'd be here for our next meal, I think. At the beginning, I said my hope was maybe we could come away and say, I never heard that before. I never heard it that way before. I never thought of that before. And likely, maybe that's been true. I would suggest we might also ask the question, what are some old scripts we might be listening to that Jesus might want to change for us? Some that have come to mind. Maybe Jesus would want to change the script of moralism. Do good, try not to do bad. In my years of working with young people, especially young people who grew up in church, there's a tendency to reduce the Christian faith to do good, try not to do bad. I'm guessing that's a script Jesus would want to change. Paul said it, the old is gone, the new has come. Let's get rid of that one. Or maybe he might want to change a script that focuses on what he can do for me and not who he is and what he has called us to. I think of a focus we have on just getting to heaven. That's focused on me. That's a script about me. That's a script about what I can get from Jesus. It's not a script about who Jesus is. So when we focus on just getting to heaven, we can easily neglect our call to become a kingdom worker. Or maybe a script that suggests that we should have answers to all our questions before we can truly believe and follow. I think of the, again, the disciple in The Chosen. I don't understand most of this. (laughs) I'm just following or in these turbulent days, might we dare to be open to Jesus messing with scripts provided by political pundits, scripts that are contrary to Jesus' words and deeds? Bottom line, might we give God permission to scratch around, mess around with the scripts that distract us from following Jesus? Let me pray. God, thank you that, and Jesus went off script. I cannot possibly imagine life had he not done that. Thank you as we come to this meal today that we can maybe celebrate it anew and see it anew because Jesus went off script. Help us to understand and realize what it really means that the old is gone, the new has come. Draw us into you. Teach us the scripts you want us to hear. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Y Church Podcast. For more information about the Y Church, check us out online at thewychurch.org.